as we come now to the proclamation of God's holy word. And our sermon text is in Matthew 28. This is our last sermon. It's been 73 weeks, actually, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, what we'll be doing next, we'll be looking at 1 Peter, possibly 2 Peter as well. And um, I trust the Lord will bless in that as well through his word. For now, we are in Matthew 28, here at the very end. And I actually want to start in verse 11. I meant to include that in the bulletin. Uh, so if you have a Bible or uh, surely a Bible app on your phone, you can look at it there. I'll begin reading in verse 11 of Matthew 28. This is God's word. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests in all uh, that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray that you would attend to its proclamation by your spirit so that we might understand and understanding might praise you for your goodness towards us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here we are at the end. It's been a long journey, a winding road of many ups and downs and twists and turns and questions and answers, but here we are at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And it's all been leading up to this unnamed mountain in Galilee. It started with a genealogy of, of names that certified that Jesus was part of David's royal line, establishing that he indeed was a king. And then it moves to his miraculous conception and birth by the Holy Spirit through a virgin, fulfilling all that God had promised and prophesied, showing us that he was not just a king, but he was the king, the promised king of all the earth. He was consecrated for ministry through John's baptism, proven to have power over Satan by defeating his every temptation in the wilderness. He preached with heaven's authority, detailing the life of the citizens in God's kingdom. 
He confirmed his divinity by miracle after miracle, giving sight to the blind, making the lame to walk, driving out demons, raising the dead to life. He confirmed his humanity by weeping with the hurting and the lost, resting when he himself was weary, eating when he was hungry, helping those in need, having compassion and care as a good shepherd caring for his flock. He comforted the fearful and lifted the fallen, healed the broken, forgave the sinning, redeemed the repentant, and rescued the lost. He was betrayed, became forsaken, suffered injustice, was beaten, broken, and killed on a cross of wood for the sins of many. He was sealed in a cold, dark tomb, guarded by soldiers, shut away from the world, and then he rose from that tomb, defeating death and becoming the first fruits of the resurrection so that his people could have hope of eternal life. He was building his kingdom. And after all of that, you would think that this kingdom of the great king would be very impressive to look at. And he is the king of kings, the king of heaven and earth after all. So his kingdom must tower above all other powers. But here at the end of Matthew's gospel, what does his kingdom look like? Eleven frightened, confused, doubtful disciples. I mean, after all the drama and the beauty and the passion and the hope and the grace of the gospel narrative, this is what we see at the end. Eleven disciples. It seemed like Jesus' enemies had actually won after all despite the resurrection and that the kingdom of this world was the victor. Yes, Jesus had risen. Yes, He had appeared to the women at the tomb. But where was the kingdom in comparison to the kingdom of the world? And we see the kingdom of the world represented here by those chief priests and elders of the Jewish people. And what are they doing but still conspiring against Christ and His kingdom? Though they believed Him to actually still be dead, for they deny His resurrection, they still want to work against Him. Because now, after the resurrection, they have a massive problem on their hands. The soldiers who had fallen down as dead at the sight of the angel sitting on the door of the empty tomb, they run to the high council and they give their report. And after all, they had been posted to that tomb to prevent what the religious and political leaders feared most, an empty grave. But now it was empty. It had happened. And so they gather together once again to take counsel once again against the Messiah one more time. And this was damage control. If the story of an empty tomb gets out, well, which surely it would, uh, then people will believe Jesus was actually risen. His followers would grow and the power that the Sanhedrin wanted to hold over the people would continue to weaken. And so the kingdom of this world lashes out again at the kingdom of God. And it does it two ways. 
through the soldiers. First, they put money into their hands. As we read in verse 12, when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And as often as the case, people try to solve their problems with money. Their wallets become their savior. And the amount given to the soldiers, we know, was a large sum. How big? We don't know. It, it simply says a sufficient sum. And the idea is that it was, it was bigger than you would have expected. It was a lot of money. Large enough that the council could get the soldiers to say what they wanted them to say and do what they wanted them to do. And what did they want them to do? Well, they put a lie into their mouth. They put money in their hands and a lie into their mouth. They say, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Notice they're trying to cast Jesus' disciples in the worst light possible. I mean, the kingdom of the world often does that. Today, believers are called bigots or irrelevant or backwards, hate-filled extremists. In Jerusalem, after the resurrection, they were called thieves and liars, deceivers. They claimed that Jesus' disciples in the dark and nefarious night stole the body of Jesus so as to make it seem he had risen. And now the irony of that is evident. I mean, after all, it was these same chief priests and elders who had ordered a guard in the first place and an official seal placed upon the tomb to prevent this very thing from happening. There was no way a weak, frightened, scattered, sorrowful group of people who were disciples of Jesus would be able to carry off, pull off this, this act of body snatching. But that didn't matter to them. This was a lie, after all. It didn't need to be true. Lies are not true. All they needed was for people to believe it. And as we know, human nature does like to believe lies. We are more gullible than we like to think we actually are. People believe lies, especially if they are told often, and especially if they come down from people with authority. And human history right up to this day is full of those in power and authority that use lies to manipulate people. That is exactly what the kingdom of the world is doing here. And the lie worked. As we read in verse 15, soldiers, they took the money, they did as they were directed. And this story, Matthew says, has been spread among the Jews to this day. This word of untruth, this false gospel narrative, like an anti-gospel, was preached among the people. It spread. And at the time that Matthew wrote his gospel, the people in Jerusalem were still believing it. Some 70 years, 60, 70 years after. And that's where the kingdom of the world was immediately after the resurrection. And while it's ironic and false, this lie, it was being believed. And so it seemed like the power and the influence of Jesus' enemies was not shattered after all. I mean, contrast that to Jesus' kingdom. 
As we see here, first, the disciples, they are small in number. We're told it was 11 disciples who went to meet the resurrected Lord in Galilee. Now we know there were more disciples. We had been introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, who provided the tomb for Jesus' body. And there were the women at the tomb and at his death and burial as well, witnessing all of that. There were the women who were honored with his presence uh, as he rose from the dead. But here Matthew only mentions the eleven. This was the inner circle, minus Judas the betrayer, the OG. They had been with Jesus the longest. They, they knew him better than anyone else. They were with him when he calmed those storms and raised the dead and proclaimed the gospel of his kingdom with power. They had heard him say that the kingdom of heaven was at hand again and again and again. But then Jesus was betrayed by one of them. And then they failed in their duty to pray with him, support him, care for him in the garden as he wrestled with the great task of going to the cross to accomplish redemption for his people. And then as he is arrested, they scatter in fear, broken and defeated. And Peter publicly denies him three times, calling down the judgment of heaven upon himself. Secondly, on top of all of that, we see they, they still had doubts in their hearts about Jesus and his resurrection. Even as he comes to them on that mountain and is present with them, their faith still smolders with doubt and defeat. Eleven broken disciples who can't even stand with Jesus in the dark moments of his life compared to this still intact Jewish Sanhedrin, the still powerful Roman Empire, the still standing temple in Jerusalem, the lie that was being spread amongst the people. Eleven doubtful, struggling people represent the kingdom of God. And so, yes, it seemed that despite the resurrection, the kingdom of the world had still won. And it still feels like that sometimes. It can feel like the kingdom of God is actually weak, and that his promises haven't come to fulfillment. Because firstly, we know that people do believe lies rather than the truth. We see it all around us. The Apostle Paul's words in Romans 1.25 are a sober reality as people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And this is not at all surprising because as God says to us in 1 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But it isn't just those outside the church who believe lies rather than the truth. Because those who claim to be Christian are deceived as well. That is why we look into 
the world and look into the church and we see any number of different Gospels being proclaimed. There are law-driven Gospels of works-based righteousness. There is a social Gospel, a Gospel of sexual liberation, a prosperity Gospel promising health and wealth. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus revealed to us in God's Word, is not worshipped for who He is. Rather, He has been replaced with the Jesus who people want Him to be. We are tempted by our own hearts to trust so many other things other than the one thing we need to trust, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen. And the never-ceasing drone of lie after lie after lie echoing down through history from that very first lie that Satan used to deceive Eve and Adam. That those lies come down and they drown out, it feels, the clear proclamation of the truth of God. And secondly, the faithful really do seem to be a small group Just like the disciples, it seems that those who are committed to Jesus are small in number, broken and scattered and weak. And as believers, we struggle even internally with our own sins. We divide and we hurt one another. We transgress God's law. We we fail Him every day and in every way. And then as the the winds, especially of Western culture and society, blow against Christ's church, it, it feels like, well, our day in the sun has ended. And while we here certainly enjoy more liberties to worship the Lord than our brethren in persecuted nations, we certainly, not being alarmists, but being wise, see the shadow of some form of persecution looming over the church, even in this country, in ways we never expected it to happen. I mean, consider the fact that in Canada, our neighbor to the north, who shares many of the same freedoms as we do, there are churches that have been barred by the government with chains and fences to prevent people from gathering. Consider the fact that government leaders, even in our own city and county and state and nation, would prefer that a church like ours, one that is committed to the Scriptures, to affirming the Gospel of Jesus Christ, would not exist. Third, like those defeated disciples, I'm standing on that windy mountaintop waiting for Jesus to come. We too are plagued by doubts. We don't always admit it. We try to keep those doubts close to our own hearts, but we doubt. We doubt the promises of God in Christ. We doubt because we hear the roar of this world that feels uh, like it is blowing down the walls of the church collapsing around us. We doubt the power of God. We doubt that He could actually do what He did in the early days of the church, adding thousands of people to its numbers in one day. We doubt that the righteousness of God will prevail. And so the kingdom of Christ seems weak. 
Where is the victory of the cross? Where is the fruit of His resurrection? And we doubt our, ourselves as well. We doubt, um, are we really one of God's people? Because our own sinful failures and struggles feel like a pit from which we can never escape and climb out of. And, and so we participate in the life of the church. We worship, we say the right things, we sing the song, but inwardly, inwardly, we feel like those 11 doubting and defeated disciples. The prevalence of dangerous lies, the denial of truth, the, the seemingly shrinking church, especially in the West, and the internal doubt in our own souls causes us to feel just like those disciples that the kingdom of God is weak and His promises are not. But here's the thing. It is precisely... It is precisely our weakness that makes the kingdom of Christ so strong. Because it's not about us. It's not about how big we are or what we have done, but it is about Jesus, what He has done, and what He is doing. No, the kingdom is not defeated. It is stronger than it has ever been and continues to grow. And we need to be reminded of that. And Jesus Himself reminds us because He comes to His defeated disciples. As verse 18 begins, Jesus came to them. They didn't go to Him. Some of them weren't even looking for a risen Savior. They still doubted. But He went to them. That's grace. He came to them. He came to them when they were weak and few in number. He came to them despite the lies circulating around Jerusalem that He was still a dead body. And in coming, He proves that lie to be untrue. He came to them even though they were doubting. He came to them and spoke to them with a voice of power and familiarity to commission them to carry on the kingdom that he had already started. Notice where he comes. He comes to them, not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee. He sent them to a mountain to meet them there in the place where it all began. Jesus started his earthly ministry in the far northern region of Israel, in Galilee, a place where there were just as many Gentiles as there were Jews. Way back in Matthew 4, the significance of this was highlighted as being a fulfillment of God's prophecy through Isaiah. Matthew 4.15, we read, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And guess how that light dawns? Well, we're told in the very next verse in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And what did He preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now here in Galilee, once again, what does He tell His disciples to do? Go make disciples of all nations. Preach the kingdom of 
of heaven. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded, teaching them the gospel of the kingdom. No, the kingdom of Christ was not defeated after all. It was about to burst forth into the world in a way that the Sanhedrin, nor Rome, nor any other earthly power could imagine, and they would not be able to stop it. The people that dwelt in darkness had seen a great light, and no shadow, not even the shadow of death, could stop its brilliance from growing as the church the kingdom of God will spread like a wildfire. Also notice that Jesus comes to them on a mountaintop. We don't know what mountain it was. It was just the top of a mountain. And there he comes to those 11 beleaguered disciples. Mountains in the Bible are significant because they're often associated with the work of God, the mighty work of God in fulfilling His covenant promises to His people. Mountains are commanding. They tower above all the landscape. You can't help but notice them on the horizon. They are a picture of power, of authority, which is fitting because Jesus says here that all authority is His in heaven and in earth. His claim of heaven's authority is a confirmation that the great work of redemption was indeed complete. Having suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous, He has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father as the King that He is. That's what Paul speaks of in Philippians 2 when he says, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the author of Hebrew writes that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All authority of heaven is His, and because of that, all authority on earth is His as well. And that means that while the earthly kingdoms and powers may attempt to move against Him and spread their lies, they in reality are accomplishing His sovereign purposes. They can do nothing but what He has directed and ordained them to do. He has authority over the chief priests and the elders, over Pilate and the emperor in Rome. He has authority over those who condemned him and tried to keep him in a cold grave. And he proved it by raising on the third day. He rose despite their best efforts to keep him buried. In fact, those efforts of theirs helped confirm the reality of his resurrection. And now he sits at the Father's right hand in all his glory. For he had spoken of this authority in the past. And now these 11 disciples are seeing it as a reality. From that all-encompassing authority, he will build his kingdom through them. So from the mountaintop, he sends them forth, these 11, 
to bring in the inheritance of nations that is rightly his, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We read in Isaiah 2, this prophecy, the Lord says, it shall come to pass in the later day, latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And then listen to this. And all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. And so Jesus from a mountain, what does He tell His disciples to do? Go and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, baptize them and teach them all He has commanded. You see, the kingdom is growing because it's not about us. Rather, it's about the glory of the King. It is through the weak things that the power of God is displayed. From 11 disciples would come a great number that nobody can number. From 11 disciples, an empire would be built that spans the entirety of the globe. And it comes not by weapons of war, not through violence in bloodshed and revolution, not through lies and propaganda, but by the truth of God manifested in the simple worship of His people. Never has a kingdom been built like that before. Only one, the kingdom of Christ. And so let's consider that command of his. He says, go and make disciples. What is a disciple? Well, a disciple is not simply a convert, though he or she is converted by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe. A disciple is a follower who is committed to Christ in faith. Being a disciple is a lifetime thing. It's an identity. It's who you are. You are a disciple of Christ. You are united to Him. And so Jesus' commission at 11 is to go out and to bring in these others whom Christ has died to win to Himself. And it doesn't happen through caramelized words of the apostles or the disciples to, to, to persuade Disciples are not made by carefully crafted programs and church growth seminars or over-the-top productions. Nobody became a disciple of Jesus Christ by fancy worship and laser lights. Nor through empty promises of prosperity and success. Nor are disciples made by acts of mercy and justice as good as those things are. But Jesus tells us simply how we built His kingdom by making disciples. And it comes from two plain things. They're not flashy. They're not fancy. They're very simple. First, He says, baptize. Baptize disciples in the Trinitarian name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism as a sign of the covenant of God's promise to us in Christ comes first in Jesus' commission, and that's intentional. You see, baptism is not, as some have designed it to be, it is not a graduation ceremony of sorts so that after being discipled, after being taught, you 
are then baptized as if you are somehow graduating. No, baptism is the initiation of the life of the disciple. It is the beginning. That is why as Christian parents, at least in our uh, faith tradition, we baptize our children because we view them as disciples of Christ. We want them to be nurtured and to nurture faith into them through God's Word. And after being baptized, after being marked with the sign of God's covenant people, they are then taught all Jesus has commanded. They grow in the faith as they nurture are nurtured through the regular proclamation of the Word of God, which is the second part of this disciple-making process. Teach. Teach. Jesus says that after you've baptized them, teach them. And teach them what? All that Christ has commanded. His Gospel. His doctrine. Not their ideas, but His truth. And to whom are they to do this baptizing and this teaching, this making of disciples? As he says, to all nations, all peoples, people who speak every language, people of every ethnicity, people from diverse cultures, men and women, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, people from Africa and Asia, people from Europe and the Americas, people from every corner of the earth. For all the earth is Christ's. As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch of this world where Christ does not say as King, Mine. The Sanhedrin preached a lie through bribed soldiers to try to stop the spread of the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus will grow it far beyond the borders of Jerusalem, and He will do it starting with only eleven. Weary, frightened, weak, inept disciples. No, the kingdom of heaven wasn't about them at all. It was all about Him. For all authority belongs to Him. So we make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and teaching them all He has commanded. And then He leaves us this promise, the promise of His eternal presence to guarantee that it will happen. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here, right now, in this very moment on this Sabbath day, we, Christ Church Ann Arbor, we are proof of that promise. We are the confirmation that the kingdom of Christ was not weak, that God had not failed, but He has made a people for His name. Because here we are worshiping God in Ann Arbor, Michigan, of all places. And we're not alone. Because on this day, there are fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers in China and Russia and Tanzania and Mexico and Brazil and Guatemala and Peru, North and South Korea, Sudan, Kenya, South Africa, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq 
people from every single nation on this earth who are lifting their voice to join ours in one great chorus of the redeemed people of God saying, all hail the king. Oh yes, the kingdom has not failed. And so let this world rage Let it spread its lies. Let it boast of its wisdom. For it is the kingdom of this world that has had its day in the Son. Jesus has already won. He reigns eternal over all the earth. And one day, when that very last amen is said, He will come bodily once again to this this earth and finish the work He has started. And that He is continuing through disciples like us. You see, the end of Matthew's Gospel, it's not the end of the Gospel. Because it's a story that's still being written and the best is yet to come. And we who believe, we who are the spiritual, the descendants of those 11 discouraged and defeated men, we are the church of Jesus Christ We are part of that story. And so let us then be courageous. Let us keep on believing. Let us not be concerned by not having a building to meet in, but press on because Christ is building His kingdom here and now through us as weak as we may be because our King is great. So let us say with one voice to the world, all Hail the King. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We are thank you for this gospel that you have given us to reveal to us that we have a high king, higher than all earthly kings and all powers, and that they will and must bow the knee before him. For you have written it and confirmed it through your word. We're thankful that we are not the ones responsible for building this kingdom. We are simply the means, the tools, the the, the objects that Jesus uses to build this kingdom. And we are humbled by that. We ask that You would give us courage and boldness to go and make the disciples, to baptize and to teach all that You have commanded, not in fear, but standing up to the power of this world and saying, no, here is the truth of God. Look to it, believe it, and live. And Father, may You use us to build Your kingdom right here, right now, and in this place for Your glory and Your name's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.